Sentire Media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Special 4th Anniversary Episode. Well, believe it or not, here we are. Four years down the road, 130 regular episodes, lots of extra bits and bobs, and we are still going. We've covered almost a thousand years of Italian history. We've got another 600 to come, but I can assure you there'll be a lot more episodes as greater sources become available and we go into greater detail. Before we start, a word from our sponsor. But don't worry, the sponsor is me. At 222 West 23rd Street in Manhattan, New York, there is a building which is currently under renovation, all covered with some long-term residents inside who are very unhappy about the situation. However, if you had had the opportunity to walk the halls of this building in the past, you would have encountered some of the greatest names in popular culture. Edith Piaf, Jack Kerouac, Janis Joplin, Andy Worrell, Bob Dylan, and many, many more. This building is the Chelsea Hotel. Join me, Mike Karadi, as I explore this historical icon of American national and international counterculture. The K-Rock Chelsea Hotel was a radio program which then became a book, which has now become a podcast, Full Circle. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get your copy of the book to follow along with the podcast or rush on ahead on Amazon. We can't wait to welcome you to the K-Rock Chelsea Hotel. So there you have it. What did a busy podcaster juggling a day job and a family need? Well, another podcast, of course. But not to worry, it will not interfere with A History of Italy, first of all because it is a short podcast that will only last 21 episodes, and secondly because it's all already written down, so you can actually get a copy of the book on Amazon if you want to read along with the podcast. So, as I mentioned, look up the K-Rock Chelsea Hotel wherever you get your podcasts. The fourth anniversary, I think, is also a great time for an announcement, and that is the one million listens threshold. Now, I'm not actually 100% sure about that, and I'll never actually know because I have no way of counting from the very beginning except for Apple Podcasts, which are at around 620,000 listens. And so I did a bit of maths, which I'm not brilliant at. If I consider that Apple Podcasts account for just under 50% of my podcast listening, and they are at 620,000, I can assume the rest will make up for the one million. And if I add to that the monthly downloads on the whole catalogue of around 40,000, well... I suppose we should be there, although, as I said, we'll never know. However, in the spirit of modern alternative facts and making stuff up as you go along, we can safely say that a History of Italy podcast has reached one million listens. Thanks to 
all of you very, very much for this wonderful achievement, which may not be an achievement, but thanks anyway. For the fourth anniversary, I have chosen an episode which got me really, really excited. I believe the very first podcast I ever listened to was The History of English, which soon led me to The History of England by David Crowther, always my hero and the model for a history of Italy. So it was with great pride and honour that in the year 2021 I appeared not once but twice on David's show. And so today I'm going to play for you the last interview with David, which coincidentally was about the 14th century in Italy, which we have just finished talking about. So, thanks again to everyone very, very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did doing it. Next week we will be coming out with episode 130 about a little Florentine banking family that you may have heard of. Until then, thanks very much for listening again, and arrivederci. everyone and welcome to the history of England, though this is a bit of a weird one. Let me briefly explain. I am about to launch a new biography series for members about the 14th century mercenary John Hawkwood, who made a famous name for himself in 14th century Italy. So I contacted Mike Caradi of the History of Italy podcast and asked him to do a sort of introduction to Italy at the start of the period when Hawkwood did his thing. And I thought everyone might also be interested. So, here is Mike to give you an early guide. Mike, hello. Hello, everyone, and hello, David, and thank you so much for the invitation. It is always a pleasure, and I might add an honour. So, as you said, my name is Mike Corradi. I am the host and producer of the A History of Italy podcast, inspired by the great The History of England podcast. Oh, stop it, Mike. (laughs) And, uh, yes, it's your fault, David. No, 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 you can keep going. It's fine. I didn't mean it. (laughs) And uh, so it is basically a chronological history from the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which I've put at uh, 476, uh, according to, let's say, the mainstream uh, date. There is some uh, debate about it. Uh, all the way up to the present day, if and when I ever get there. And we are actually around the 14th century at the moment, which is really lucky because that's what we're going to be talking about today. It is indeed. And actually, you did a very nice guest episode for us, which people really liked, actually. Good, um, good. I'm glad. About freedom and bagpipes, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. More recent there. Very good. So, as Mike says, the reason why he's here is because at the moment for members, we are just about to launch into one of my extended biographies on John Hawkwood. So, Mike, what I do for members, amongst other things, including drinking and all the rest sort of thing in history, is uh, some extended biographies. So we've done Eleanor of Aquitaine, Margaret Beaufort. We have done William Marshall. And since I'm going sort of girl boy, girl boy, like a dinner party type thing. Excellent. We've come to the prawn cocktail in the form of John Hawkwood, <laughs> 14th century 
condottieri, a word which you would say with much more elegance than me. Yes, it's a condottiero, singular. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so clever. The thing is, Mike, and the reason why we're here is that I'm starting to do Hawkwood because I bought a book in 2004, never read it, and it's been looking at me since then in an accusatory <laughs> sort of way, because I do guilt. And it was on John Hawkwood. So I thought, great, we'll do John Hawkwood next, because that's... And you got a book at home, so it's always convenient to do stuff you've already got in the house. So. Good point. Good point, indeed. Exactly. Save on costs. But then I read the book, and I started doing the research, and it's began to worry me a little bit, because it is, like Leeds on a Saturday night, very fighty. <laughs> you know, at the age of 12, I loved you know, everything military was absolutely, you know, my meat and drink, but I've... I've matured a little, and I realise there are other things in the world, world than physical violence now. So, and I'm worried that people get bored. So the idea is that you're going to tell us about the sort of things that we can talk about at the time, about what Italy was like, the kind of environment they all lived in, and you're going to leave everybody saying, right, it's not just going to be about Butchergate on a Saturday night. What it's going to be is about the fantastic culture uh, and history of Italy. Okay, so that is your job. If people don't listen, you're fired, all right? Oh, that's a, a great responsibility there, oh dear. It is, it is, Mike. Give me a broad brush um, to start, Mike, if you if you can bear it. What is it about early 14th century Italy that makes it fascinating? What are the, the big themes that we should then talk a bit more about? Well, it's an exciting time. But then again, you know, Italy in the medieval times and also modern times has always been uh, a crazy, exciting place. If you go in for the mainstream sort of literature and art and so on, this is the century of Dante Alighieri, the divine comedy, the scourge of Italian school children. You know that Shakespeare is uh, the, the, how can we say, the nightmare of English school children. Ours is Oh, that's right. Dante. So, so Dante is the, the equivalent of Chaucer. Yeah, something oh. like that. Something like Chaucer or Shakespeare, and then the other one would be later on Manzoni. So I've just had to purchase for the umpteenth time Manzoni's Promessi Sposi in five, in addition with five books for my son's school. So, oh, how uh, lovely. So every, every, every nation have their, has their childhood nightmares that they yes, have to go exactly. through. Well, exactly. Do a list, actually. Go around Europe and do a list of all the that things. That would be that... interesting. People, you know, artists and, and especially writers that people hate in their yes. country. <laughs> and we can all consign them to Dante's Seven Circle. Exactly. Stick them in there. Exactly. In there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Dante, Boccaccio, Petrarch, it's their century. Who And all, all, particularly Dante and Petrarch were also very active on, on a sort of political level as well. So they uh, overlap uh, with between literature and history, you would say. Uh, then the 14th century is a century in which we sort of set the scene for the naughty, exciting bit, which is, you know, when the Medici then come along in the, in the following century and the Borgias and, and all of that exciting stuff. The 14th century sets that up because it's the, and we'll probably talk about this more as we go along, it's the transition phase between the communal air, uh, period in which you had all the different especially in the north, the different communes, these independent city-states, started to figure out that they weren't going to get very far with this whole thing, you know, the divisions inside, uh, fighty-fighty all the time, uh, a lot worse than Leeds on a Saturday evening, 
the, the corresponding here in Italy, modern day, could be something like the uh, Lazio, AS uh, Roma derby or something like that. Right. Okay. Anyway, this is the transition phase. I, where I see have... another list coming on, actually, Mike, when we're talking. <laughs> we've also got fightiest areas on a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, our provincialism has remained very much in our, in our blood. So, for example, I live in a city called Reggio Emilia. And if the Parma football team ever happens to come into town or vice versa, that can get quite nasty as well. So whoever's next down the road is the, is the person you usually have a, yes, a bad right. relationship with. And, uh, and so the, the 14th century is setting the scene because we have that passage between the communal era and that of the signoria. What are the signoria? Literally, it means the, the lordships. Basically, what happens is through different kinds of procedures, communal organization gives way to a single ruler. To give you an example, the Visconti in Milan, the Della Scala in Verona, uh, you have some interestingly named ones like the Castracani in Lucca, the dog castrator family. Nice. Yes, very, very uh, nice. Uh, there you can imagine what the origin of that may have been. <laughs> uh, and also there's, you know, there's, there's always crazy stuff going on all the time. So you've got battles over a bucket, you've got popes legging it off to Avignon, uh, interesting modern uh, style things going on in Sardinia. Naples is constantly at war in this century with Sicily because they've split up and they used to be a single kingdom formed, founded by the Normans, incidentally. Um, you have the rise of Milan in the 14th century. So Milan comes to dominate the north of Italy. Of course, you have good old Venice, you know, with its super international commercial power. And Venice starts to look inland a little bit as well to start to have a bit of a uh, how can we say, a land empire within Italy in this century. Of course, you have the numerous naval battles. Genoa and Venice are always at each other's throats uh, all around the Mediterranean. You know, they, they fight in the waters of the Mediterranean around Italy, but also around Constantinople in the Black Sea. That they're, they're, they're beating it out of each other all the time all over the place. And it's also already a place of intrigue and assassination plots and vendettas and family feuds and so on and so forth. Then, of course, the 14th century on a European level, as we know very well, is the century of the, the, an economic crisis, the Great Plague. And here we go back to Boccaccio as well. And it is the century in which predominantly we have this uh, evolution of the figure of the condottiero, who, which basically means a, a leader or military leader. Condurre in Italian means to lead, to guide. And a condottiero are these military leaders sometimes coming in from the end or, or, or a break, let's say, in the Hundred Years' War, so coming in from, from, from France, as is the case of our friend Johnny Hawkwood there. So that, that's perhaps one of the most interesting things. You have a lot of these figures, and some of these condottieri actually end up becoming lords, you know, coming at least temporarily to rule cities. And John Hawkwood himself also was, for a time, he ruled over certain areas because what would happen, you know, the city would... would hear or see that a group of these companies, uh, like the White Company, for example, was operating around the area. So maybe said, okay, rather than get our, our city burned down by these guys, let's ask them to be lords of our cities. And then they would rule for a time because the, the cities were always looking for some sort of system, let's say, to overcome their internal fighting, factional fighting, and avoid getting clobbered by the next city down the road as well. Great. So, so lots of interesting stuff. Lots going of on interesting stuff. And what about um, uh, what about papacy in all of this? Ha. 
the papacy in a lot of the uh, 14th century has sort of abandoned Italy. This is the century of the Avignon papacy in which Clement V took the papacy and shifted it up to Avignon, whereas towards the end of the century we see a return which then gave way to the Great Western Schism, or Schism, 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 let's say, towards the end of the century. So it's left, as far as the papal states are concerned, a sort of power vacuum. And when we talk about papal states, and then maybe we'll go into this a bit later when we do our little round of political geography, we're talking the area around Rome, which is now modern-day Lazio region, and so then going up through Umbria, so, you know, Perugia, where they do the nice chocolate, all the way. Up. It's our, what is, what is the place in England uh, where you go for, for Cadbury's? Um, well, Bur- in, Birmingham. Birmingham, yeah. Although yeah. my mother would say York. Don't go to, yeah. don't go for Bourneville, go for, for uh, Roundtree. But, you know. Ah, okay, okay. They're all owned by uh, international companies now anyway, so. Okay, well, anyway, our, ours is Perugia. Our chocolatey place okay. is, is Perugia. And so through Umbria and up to a part of the Romagna area, it comes from the fact that it was one of the areas which remained in Byzantine hands when the Lombards were hanging around. And so they referred to that as the the place of the Romans because the Byzantines were were known as Romans, not as Byzantines. So that's why the the Romagna area, indeed the region I live in, is called Emilia-Romagna, which is Emilia, which is sort of the uh, north-western part, and Romagna, which is the south Eastern part, where you have all the lovely seaside places like Rimini, uh, where you know Federico Fellini came from, for example. So that's all of that's the papal state. So Lazio through Umbria up to parts of Romagna, parts of Emilia, because you know there's always been a bit of an attempt of the papacy to to put its hands on Bologna as well. And um, so the papacy, the, the Pope abandoned this area, and so also in the Romagna area in the 14th century, we start to see this shift towards the Signoria, so independent lordships, independent rulers taking over these cities. For example, I mentioned Rimini. We have the Malatesta uh, in Rimini, uh, which is another great family. Also reminds us once again of Dante because they were um, the origin of this this uh, Rimini area. So the famous Paolo and Francesca who were, you know, being whipped around, I think, in the, in the was it third circle that of the, the passionate circle or something like that. Uh, anyway, some, some Dante I'm scholar. Afraid I'm afraid I'm not very good at my but... Dante circles, apart from number <laughs> but, seven, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, but anyway, that, that, uh, that's the area of the papal states. And then, again, we'll probably talk about this later, but, you know, the, the presence of the papal states and the papacy have always greatly influenced Italian politics all throughout history to current day. How far are we talking about the Renaissance in the 14th century, or is this pre-Renaissance stuff? Not really. You could, I mean, you could say that we, with from a literature point of view, Dante could could sort of signal the start of a certain Renaissance. Also, artistically, the 14th century was a century of Giotto, for example, mm-hmm. from from an artistic point of view. I mean, some people could even search for the seeds of the Renaissance in the court of Frederick II. So, you know, you're talking 13th century. Mm. So, for example, he was a great patron of the arts. He promoted Italian as a language for public life in general, which is one of the signs of the Renaissance, the, 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 the birth, if we will, of Italian as opposed to Latin or a vulgarization of Latin. So, I mean, it's not, obviously we're not talking full-blown Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel, Leonardo da Vinci, etc. But you can sort of see the seeds. And we, you and I know 
as at least I'm, I'm a, a, an amateur historian and our listeners know that you can't really, you know, pick a date and say, okay, before that it was yes. not Renaissance and after that it wasn't. So you could see the seeds of Renaissance definitely in the, in the 14th century. Well, of course, it's simpler in, in English history because, of course, on the, uh, after 1485, everybody becomes early modern. Yeah, exactly. Know, one morning, the wake up. Yeah, I said, oh, I feel modern. very early modern yes, today. I've yes, different, yes. different it must light guys. That yeah. ale yesterday made me feel yes. particularly early modern. <laughs> okay, so um, I am not very... One of the problems I've got is when I'm doing something in Italy, unlike doing all the English stuff, I don't know the topography anything like as well. I mean, obviously, given that uh, Tuscany is such an amazing beautiful place i've been there a few times but cantyshire i believe is that right in england yeah yeah <laughs> quite right too um and actually i went for my honeymoon there um because i used to be a publisher i published a famous work very well known actually uh, still talked about in the in the wider industry alongside harry potter the design and performance <laughs> of road pavements by uh, Tony and Tony. <laughs> yes, yes. Very exciting read, yeah. I was undecided whether to see how Voldemort ended up or to see how, how the roads Indeed. got paved. Absolutely it? right. Yeah. Uh, and he recommended a place called the Hotel Soul in Volterra, so we went there several times, actually. Anyway, mm-hmm. but apart from that, I don't really know the topography. So I wondered if you could walk down with me from, I don't know, the passes in the Alps or wherever, and just walk down with me through the climate and topography uh, of Italy down to the toe in brief. And maybe we could then talk about how that might affect uh, life and warfare in uh, 14th century Italy. Absolutely. So first of all, it's interesting that Italy's, uh, if you look at a map, the only country that's actually very... Uh, visually and obviously shaped like an object. I, I, I got, yes. I went down a rabbit hole with this to see if there were other countries that you could look at the map and say, "Oh, that looks like whatever." And there's not much. It was a slow day, was it, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 it wasn't actually. It's the kind of thing where you know you shouldn't be doing it because you have a lot of other yes. stuff to do. But I, do, you know, just those curious things. So anyway, it is shaped like a boot, uh, sticking out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, I always say that if you want to have an, a mental image of how it, of what Italy looks like, is there's the, the boot part which is obvious to everyone and you take a giant piece of broccoli three times the width of the boot and stick it in the top and that's what italy looks like the broccoli at the top is the part of the country that's attached to europe and that is the alpine passes that you mentioned david so first of all from one point of view if we're talking only land armies it, it's it's quite a uh, an interesting natural fortress because if you have the power like the Romans had in, in sort of the peak of the Roman Empire to guard all of those mountain passes. Off the top of my head, I think in Roman times there are about 23 mountain alpine mountain passes. So it's a lot, but it's not an infinite amount. So if you could guard those mountain passes, then you could avoid any sort of army coming down into Italy. Then obviously, uh, if you don't have that kind of manpower, and the other problem is Italy is almost all coastline. So all you had to do was go around by ship and, and then, you know, it was almost impossible to defend. Later on, when, when Italy was defending against the Saracens and the Turks, they would litter the, the coastline with these Saracen, Torri Saracene, these Saracen towers to look out against the, 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 the invaders. But anyway, we start from the Alpine passes. So the top, very top left, you have the Asta Valley, 
which is the sort of French-speaking area, which is part of Italy. Then you move down into Piedmont, which is historically important also for our John Hawkwood, because that's one of the first areas in which he was active. He intervened between the, the Monferrato, which was the traditional powerhouse of Piedmont that was waning in this century and sort of giving way to the House of Savoy, which would be very important for Italian history because it was a house that ended up being the, the kings of Italy, basically. But John Hawkwood intervened in, against the House of Savoy and, and was able to defeat them. So Piedmont and Val d'Aosta on the top left, going down a bit, you have Genoa, so the very important uh, maritime republic that for a long time, for, for almost a century and a half, rivaled the, the power of Venice. Uh, so very, I mean, it's sort of ignored because it, it lasted a bit less and it was perhaps less influential in the end than Venice. But Genoa was also a very powerful maritime republic. Going through the middle, you, you then move. So from Piedmont, a river springs, which is called the Po, hmm. which is nothing to do with Teletubbies, obviously. Sure, but thank God for that. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, the Po River flows through the Po Valley, which is the only large sort of flat area in all of Italy, except for maybe a part on the heel of the boots, Puglia. Uh, the Po Valley is is the only sort of large, fertile area. There are also some some parts, some plains in, in Tuscany as well that you mentioned at the beginning, but let's say the Po Valley is the largest area. But at the same time, the Po, you can, you can imagine the Po cutting through the center of the Po Valley. That's why it's called the Po Valley, obviously. Uh, and at the same time, there's all these affluents. So if you can imagine like a fish skeleton or fish, no, what do we call it? Yeah, fish bones with all the affluents going into the Po. So, and then we'll talk about this. Any army after getting through the Alps would have to continuously forge or wade through a series of, of larger and smaller rivers to get uh, further down south. Right, so the Po Valley was a, a, an obstacle to, to movement as well as a source of well, fertile... Well, yes and no. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you, if you could use... Because back then, the river was more navigable. Now, nowadays, it hasn't, unfortunately, been... There hasn't been a lot of investment in navigation on the river. But you could also go move up and down the river. So in some ways, it was an obstacle. But if you had, you know, the right... So, for example, Venice used it for trade. It would move its, its goods up and down from, for example, Mantua... Uh, all the way up to Verona, maybe. And then Verona would be sort of the gateway up to the north and up to Europe. So uh, it, it depended if you have something to put on the river or not. But it could be an obstacle, and it was an obstacle, all the way up to the, the 19th, 20th century, also the 20th century. I mean, you know, one of the things that the Allies were doing when the Nazis were retreating was bombing the various bridges. So the, the Nazis would have trouble uh, retreating. Hmm. So Po Valley, which also includes Lombardy, which is the modern day region of Lombardy. But once upon a time, Lombards was the name given to almost all of Italians. Uh, indeed, the famous Lombard Street in London comes from the, the Lombards, basically. So if you were not by the 14th century, it was sort of wearing out, but sort of from the 8th, 9th to the 12th, 13th century, people in Italy would probably refer to themselves as Lombards, at least in the northern part of the country. So Lombardy, then we have Veneto, Venetia, if you will, and then going over to Venice on the, on the right side, on the eastern side. And then going down, you have my region, the Emilia-Romagna region, then you go down to Tuscany. And so all of these areas are hilly, mountainous, are very fertile areas, but then you start going down into the Apennines, and that's when the mountains start again. So obviously, agriculture becomes a little bit more difficult. 
you have the spine, the Apennines acting as a spine of Italy, so going down Tuscany, uh, Le Marche, uh, then going down to central Italy, Umbria, Molise, Lazio, the Rome area on the coast. And here we start to change also climate. So from the more temperate European-like climate of northern Italy, you start to go down to very swampy area, dangers of malaria. uh, And these swampy areas persisted almost up until the 20th century when they started to be, what what would we say, dried out or dragged out or or, uh, bonificate, we would say in Italian. Uh, Drained. Drained. That's it. That's what I was looking for. Drained, and, and that's something that Mussolini took credit for, but actually didn't do. Uh, right. It started up before he he came along. Populist. And so, do that. yeah, the heading down uh, Lazio, then you have sort of the southern Italy, where it becomes more typically Mediterranean. You know, when you see these images of the Mediterranean seaside town with sort of low. Uh, not many forests, uh, deforestation had already occurred during Roman times, um, more dry sort of uh, macchia mediterranea, we'd say in Italian, sort of a Mediterranean bush area, going all the way down to the, the toe and the heel, so the toe being Calabria and the heel being Puglia, lovely holiday area, if you're thinking about going on holiday there, really nice. And then obviously you cross over to Sicily, which acted sort of as a natural fortress, unless again you had a good navy there. And there you would have more sort of a Mediterranean Greek style vegetation and climate, very hot, very dry compared to the northern parts of, of the country. From a, a military point of view, we sort of mentioned it. I mean, coming through the Alps was never going to be easy. Uh, you had to choose certain passes. So, for example, the Holy Roman Emperors would come down sort of the Verona area. Um, people coming in from France would come down to the Turin, Valsusa area, the sort of Hungarian and, and the Lombards themselves. And the Ostrogoths would have come in from the eastern side. So the Alpi Giulia, the, the, the Julian Alps and, and so on. And then they'd have the trouble of crossing all of these rivers to get through. And then, then they had the Apennines again. So by the time you got all the way down, for example, to Rome or even Puglia, you'd, ha- you'd have a lot of obstacles you'd been through. And then maybe you'd risk parking your army, say, I don't know, outside of Rome because you, you felt like besieging Rome that day. Why not? And, you know, you'd maybe sitting there waiting to the, the siege out and then your, your army would be riddled with dysentery or malaria or something like that due to the, the sort of swampy climate there. And, and if you wanted to go all the way down to Sicily, by the time you got there, you'd done thousands of kilometers. So the length of Italy has also historically mm. caused trouble. And indeed, that's why a lot of the interest that went on was more towards the north, although Hawkwood did get involved in the whole sort of Naples uh, throne of Naples um, between the uh, Duras Anjous and the French Anjous mm. as well. So that's maybe an overlook okay. of, of what the Italian peninsula would present to somebody waltzing down from Europe. So some of your uh, problems as a military commander or a mercenary captain would be all about movement across these. Another particular, so I think in, yeah, you know, obviously in England, we, it's uh, a sort of north-south divide of highland and lowland. Um where do, what does communication run? Does communication run north to south or east to west? Or is there not really that division? Here, you know, we think going from Norfolk to Wales is a lot more different, difficult than going from Rickmansworth to Leeds. <laughs> well, you know, uh, whatever way you were going, you would have some of the same trouble on, on both in both directions. So obviously moving sort of uh, along the Po River uh, east to 
So the Po River flows from west to east. So obviously, if you if you just put your boat on the river, you're going to naturally sort of flow down towards the sea. So that would have been easier, whereas going against the current in the other direction, which the Venetians, for example, would do if they were taking goods up to Verona. Um, the mountain passes are obviously are difficult in both directions. So, you know, uh, you would have to consider what period of the year it was if you were moving your armies as well. So, you know, the, the, the movement north to south it's something that, that they people try to avoid as much as possible. I mean, you have to have a really good reason to go all the way down right. to the tip. Although, you know, a lot of army that the Anjou went to Naples and conquered Naples, the Hungarian Anjou as well, uh, brought armies down. And another thing from a, a military point of view, obviously the size of your army. So since we're talking about the lack of very large uh, flat areas, it was difficult to have a very large army moving around, which gave the advantage. And that's why the condottieri were particularly successful, because with a small band, you could actually do a lot of damage mm. because there weren't these giant armies, not only for, for geographical reasons, but also for, for monetary reasons, because there wasn't one central king or government who could whip up all of the cash necessary for to, to put a big army on the field. And so, for example, the heavy cavalry, you know, the Norman heavy cavalry, is something that obviously was present in Italy, but was never as huge as in other great battles in England, in France, for example, because you, you just it would you would have trouble setting up a big uh, cavalry like that. And and the Italian sort of infantry units, the lancers and the halbard units, were were particularly adept at resisting cavalry charges. So, for example, when uh, Frederick Barbarossa was defeated at the Battle of Legnano, it was just because the the the, the Milanese and the Northern League armies just waited out the various uh, waves of, of cavalry charges in their, in their sort of uh, lines. And, and so also space is, was a big issue. So not only moving around, but also putting a set army on the field would have been hmm. a bit of a challenge. Okay, that's great. So my personal knowledge comes more from the, the centuries of Frederick II and Frederick Barbarossa, so just before the 14th century. And their history there was all about the Guelph and the Ghibellines and the emperor and versus uh, the Pope and states who wanted to be independent and the Pope. Um, so where are we by the time Hawkwood tips up uh, with his bags in the middle of the 14th century? Where are we with the, that sort of political geography? Well, the, the whole Guelph and Ghibelline business has, has petered out a little bit. I mean, it's still labels that are occasionally used, but they're sort of devoid of, of their original meaning. And we're in the period of transition, as we mentioned, in which the, the, the communal periods so of that, Frederick Barbarossa and Frederick II, especially in the north, because when we're talking communal period, we focus very, very much on the north, because already right. in the 11th century, the Normans had set up the Kingdom of Sicily, which included Sicily and all of southern Italy. So that already was going off in a different direction. There were some communal experiences there, but never as, as developed as they were in the north. So as I said, we're going into a transition period in which the commune has given way to the signoria. And this happened in different ways. So it could be uh, a, a powerful family within the commune coming to prominence, as we will see later on with them with the Medici, because they, Florence was sort of a late bloomer in, in the whole signoria business. Florence, very influential. We'll see also, you, your listeners will see for, for Hawkwood. And uh, so it could be a family from within. It could be 
a family from the countryside, you know, from, from the local castle coming in and, and taking power. It could be one of the condottieri, because very often the condottieri would be asked to become lord of the city. And then once they were... Uh, they came to prominence and power in one city, they would look to expand. So, for example, you, David, mentioned the Visconti in Milan. As soon as they'd sort of, at the beginning of the 14th century, uh, got a, a tight grip on Milan, then they looked to the, the surrounding area. So Lodi, Brescia, uh, or a lot of the, the, the towns in, in the Lombardy area, moving into Piedmont as well, and then also looking east to, for example, Verona. One of the big clashes were between the Visconti and the Della Scala, the stair family of the stairs in uh, in Verona. Then you had the 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 the, um, the Este, for example, in Ferrara, and they would come to prominence. And and the 14th century was a continuous fight and battle. So one week the Visconti would be against the Della Scala. The week after they would be with them in a league against maybe Florence, and then Venice would come in and fall. So it was just a big big uh, mess basically. And so, I, yeah. and what are they fighting about? Land mostly trade. Right. Uh, Venice, Venice, for example, got annoyed at a certain point because uh, the Della Scala were blocking off their access to the internal trade areas. But mostly land and influence. You know, it, mm. it's usual. <laughs> you know, the thing right. that humans have fought over for for centuries. Then obviously there would always be a casus belli. You know, some spark that ignited it. Or they would be asked, you know, the Pope would ask them to intervene in some or other thing. Or, you know, one family, uh, maybe, I don't know, the Della Torre, which was another famous uh, or powerful Milanese family, would try and get other cities to help them get back into Milan. So, you know, they, they were there. there was always a reason to fight. I mean, it's constant warfare. And, and that's maybe, I, I think, could be why especially the 14th century tends to be a bit squished between the, the things you mentioned. So the, the, yeah. the Fredericks and then the Renaissance on the other side, because it's just really hard to remember what was going on in that period. Yeah. Indeed, what I do in my podcast is I try and take some examples and I tell my listeners, look, it was like this more or less everywhere. And mm. so Hawkwood is good, you know, because Hawkwood allows you to have a look in Piedmont. He allows you, he, he, he married a Visconti, for example, mm -hmm. uh, the daughter of, of Bernabò, one of the three Visconti, Bis, Visconti, Visconti brothers who were active at the time of, of Hawkwood. He, he was influential in Florence. He intervened with the Pope, you know, he helped the Pope out and then he was against the Pope because the Pope wasn't paying him. And uh, and also, as I said before, he intervened in the whole uh, dynastic struggle over the throne of Naples. So mm. he's a very good example. And that's what I try yeah. to do to give people an idea of what may have been going on in Italy in the 14th century, although it's almost impossible to remember what cities and what condottieri yeah. were with who and what because they could change really week by week and it's maybe at the same time that two cities or two lords were allied they also had a secret alliance with somebody else so right. uh, it was just very very interesting but just a big mess so what was the pope's aims in italy generally was it territorial or was it influential or was it religious well you know it, it depended very much on the on the pope at the time so you had uh popes who were more interested in actually reforming the church i mean uh, going back to to the the the, the sort of guelph ghibelline business the first that comes to mind is gregory the seventh for example so you had a feeling that he was really out to to sort of uh, reform the church and other popes would have been more interested in a sort of territorial 
territorial gains and maintaining power. I mean, also we have to remember that many popes came from noble families. Mm. If we go and look at Rome, we had, I don't know, the Colonna, the Orsini, big important families who would vie for power and produce many popes whose interest was basically maintaining the power of their family. So it depended very much on the pope. Obviously, historically, in all of Italian history, so in the very birth of of what we could call post-Roman Empire Italy, the Pope has been very influential because, aside from being the spiritual authority over what was then all of Christendom, before obviously the Reformation and so on, he would be the political leader of uh, of a a state, Uh, obviously not in the modern uh, sense of the word, but the papal states were always there in the middle. So anyone at any historical moment who was looking to expand, so we're talking about the Visconti, it could have been Frederick II, it could have been the King of Naples, it could have been uh, the the, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany that would come later, or the Florentine Commune. Anybody who was looking to expand, you know, they'd look around, and there's a sea on one side, and if you're looking north, then you're in in the um, Kingdom of Naples, there's the Papal States. If you're in the north and you're looking around, you've got the Alps to the north, and you look south, there's the Papal States. So the Pope was always very much interested in maintaining the independence of the Papal States, and so then he would call in whatever power seemed convenient at the moment. It could have been the Normans at a certain point, it could have been the Visconti even at a certain point, it could have been Florence, or it could have been foreign powers. So maybe the Anjou, uh, maybe the Hungarians, and so on. So yeah. uh, very, very influential. To this day, I mean, consider that the main political party that held power from the end of the Second World War to basically the early 80s, so almost all of the, the, the Republican, the early Republican era, era of Italy, because Italy became a re- Republican in, in 1946, the main political party was the Christian Democrats, who were very strongly influenced by the, by the, um, by the Vatican. So, for example, mm. divorce didn't come to Italy until 1974. Uh, still today, if you try and promote a referendum, for example, on stem cell research, you will meet very strong opposition by Catholic political forces. Mm-hmm. So the Pope has historically for all, almost all of the sort of post-Roman papacy been a great influence in Italy. How, um, I think this is probably a naive question, how did they square the religious with the temporal as it were, you know, was there any conflict or is this just a sort of a, a later concept that we can forget in medieval Italy? No, I mean, the, the, it, it was difficult, obviously, because and indeed, whenever there were issues, I, I think, for example, Frederick II, they, they wouldn't sort of bow down and, and say, OK, well, since he's the Pope, I'll just sort of bow my head and accept everything. So there were uh, figures, uh, political figures who would point to this paradox or the, this uh, conflict of interest if you will. Um, Obviously, the idea is that St. Peter was given the task of managing or or influencing the souls of Christians, and to help do that, the political power would help them to be good on the land as well. So, you know, in the minds of the popes, they had been granted, and there was also a whole controversy about false, you know, the, the, the donation mm. of, of Constantine. Oh, yes. uh, yeah. You know, in the minds of the popes, they theoretically owned all of the Western Roman mm. Empire, and, and they should, and they should, in their minds, have been the spiritual and political authority over that uh, over mm. that area. Okay, very good. Uh, and then, sort of going back a bit, so you say yes, quite that the period is sort of squished between the. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines on one hand, and then 
Yeah. What gets taught in school? So does the 14th century appear at all? Yeah. Well, I, I would, uh, and I hope I, I don't offend any uh, sort of prehistory historians, but I, I'm a bit tired of hearing about the Australopithecus and the <laughs> right. Homo this and Homo sapiens, which <laughs> I think is very important, fascinating. But in Italian schools, we could really dedicate a little bit less time to that and possibly... Is that get, right? That's uh, very uh, interesting. Yes, 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 huh? yes, yes. But they go through all of them, you know. My, my, I think we my, do bugger all of that, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> Well, they, we do. We need it. We need a happy medium there. Cause, we you know, do. My, my kids spent a couple of months, you know, but my, my eldest is 17. So he's finishing high school. My youngest has just started the second year of what we call in Italy, Scuola Media, which maybe makes sense to an American listener as middle school. And and they you know always start up with these Australopithecus and then the Babylonians and, and which I think is great and interesting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think you could just sort of reduce that a little bit and allow them to get up to at least the Second World War. I mean, I'm not saying you know the Republic and Italy and all of the strange goings on that we had here during the 70s, but at least uh, the Second World War. Anyway, specifically talking about the the 14th century. Um, after after you you mentioned that you you were interested in that, I ran and had a look at my my kids history right. books and the 14th century does get some space in italy because uh, again you know dante boccaccio petrarca mm. all of these people you got to you know give some background so for example dante was was very influential also in the history of tuscany because he was an active political member he was a priore of the city he fought in not in the 14th, but, you know, almost in the 14th century. He mm. fought in the important battle of Campaldino between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. And and so there is some attention to the 14th century, also the economic crisis, the Great Plague, obviously, mm. as an important uh, sort of uh, watershed in the middle of the century. So, you know, my son's book gives it like uh, two units and my daughter's two right. and a half units. So it does it does get some attention yeah. in, in Italy, uh, perhaps more than more than elsewhere. Right. Pretty good. Okay, uh, so if you were to pick your your high point of the 14th century, uh, Mike, that I mustn't ignore, what would it be? What, give me your top three or whatever it might be. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Top three. I don't know. I, I'd have to sort of do two different lists. One that I really like, uh, things I like and think are cool, and one sort of that are important historically because okay. uh, one thing, from the historical point of view, the rise of the Visconti, because then you know that would become the Grand Duchy of Milan right. and influence so much of, of Italian politics in uh, in the future. Um, they're quite colourful characters, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Visconti. I mean, you know, there's Sparta. a story or two around the Visconti. They weren't, weren't shy on putting it out there, were they? No, not at all. No, but neither were many of the other families around there. <laughs> but they were very, very... And you can't point to the, the these families and say, oh, these were the goodies and these were the baddies. They were, they, they were capable of yeah. nasty business, all of them. So, so Actually, I one of the things I found interesting already... Actually, sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah, no, no, go, go. But, um, is this thing about, you know, the, the mercenaries that are wandering all over the place as seen as a foreign scourge and this external terrible thing. And on the other hand, everybody's employing them exactly. left, right and centre, you know, and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's stabbing including each the Pope, other in the back. Including the Pope. Yes, including the Pope, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, I'm sure there's a modern parallel somewhere, but anyway. Anyway, so the Visconti, great. Okay, yeah. they go in the important bucket. Do they, they go in the important in... bucket. Uh, okay. I also don't mind, I'm not a huge fan of Milan, but I could put them in my... In my... No, uh, so first in the important bucket, I like to, on a personal level, perhaps not so important, draw attention to Sardinia, which is often left out. It's the island sort of uh, west of Italy. And there was always something a bit 
unusual and, and sort of modernly going on in in Sardinia. For example, they had a parliament long before, you know, starting right. in the 8th and 9th centuries. They had sort of proto-parliaments before anybody could mm-hmm. even fathom the idea of a yeah. parliament. Uh, so they were always, and they had a nice figure in the 14th century, which was Eleonora d'Arborea. Eleanor okay. of Arborea, who basically set out a code, a, a constitution, if you will, called the the, cor, uh, the Carta de Logu, the, the the Charter of the Land, uh, in which there were there were some very very modern ideas. Um, just to give you a very quick example, uh, if a woman was 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 uh, violated, she was raped, then the 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 rapist would have to find her, either marry her, but if the woman mm-hmm. didn't want to marry him, and she could choose. The rapist had to find her a suitable husband of her liking and pay for her dowry. Um, and women were allowed right. to manage power. So I like this this story of Sardinia because it's, I, I really like the Sardinians as well. It's lovely, another wonderful mm. place to go on holiday. So that would be on my. Well, I shall try and find a way of working it in there. I don't Absolutely. think it goes there, unfortunately. But maybe you know, I can invent a holiday, yes. camping holiday yes. on the Sardinian coast, yes. something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Lovely place, full of history and love. I mean, when you see those images of these crystal clear blue or green sea, it's usually either Sardinia or all sorts Calabria or, or, or Puglia. So, mm. uh, and then obviously another thing is Venice will always be very, very influential. Right. Although more interestingly in an international rather than Italian level for, for, because for many centuries, Venice was just sort of off doing their thing there in the corner, not really interested in what was going on inland. Mm. Whereas in the 14th century, they became a bit more interested uh, in that. Um, the Avignon Papacy, something in the important list, but I'm really not a huge fan of, of, of the whole Avignon Papacy. I enjoy the whole monkey business going on down in the kingdom of Naples. The 14th century saw a very interesting queen of Naples, Joanna I. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the start of the 15th, we'll see another one called Joanna II, known as the Insatiable or the Mad. Uh, okay. So some very interesting figures there down in uh, in in Naples. So yeah, um, I think I've confused the two lists a little bit now. But anyway, I go, you know. Visconti, Venice, a papal states, and Avignon papacy, Kingdom of Naples, uh, Genoa. I would say, and mm-hmm. um, if you want to sort of retrospectively look at the importance of modern Italy, you need to uh, keep an eye on what's starting to go on in Piedmont, because then that would lead eventually to unification of mm-hmm. Italy centuries and centuries later. But I would say that's that's um, sort of the main uh, tour that you could do. Again, if I want to finish my personal list, Romagna. I like right. the whole Rimini, Malatesta, Forlì. Forlì would be the town also of Caterina de' Medici, of the Medici family, and you know the Iron, the Iron Count, the Iron Duchess, uh, and and things like that. So yeah, yeah, I would say those are the main points that uh, that, that we need to look at. Very good. I have one more question actually, which I forgot to ask earlier. And um, obviously, in the, in the period I knew a little bit about. It's a constant story of imperial intervention. What sort of relationships do, do the Italian states and, and kingdoms and towns have with external countries? It depends how, for example, it depends where you start from. And if we're talking specifically 14th century, the 14th century is when we start to see that sort of, and, and even actually the 13th century, when we start to see the uh, interventionism by foreign powers, which would then lead to the Italian wars, for example, in the mm-hmm. 16th century, and the dominance of France and Spain over Italy 
uh, and then later Austria until the unification, basically. So we could say that our 14th and, and then 15th century are sort of the, the last periods in which we can talk about independent city-states or nations or duchies, because then mm. the, the foreign innovation would really kick in. And uh, so, for example, we already had, at the end of the 13th century, the Aragonese taking over the uh, Sicily. We mm-hmm. had the French Anjou taking over uh, southern Italy. So the Kingdom of Naples was, was uh, under the rule of the Anjou. Sardinia would eventually fall under the, the Aragonese as well. So in this period, the Aragonese, or so the Spanish and, and the French, would start to fight it out, particularly starting in the southern part of Italy. And and again, you know, their interaction with the popes. Mm. Whereas if you go back further, obviously, you know, you can you can look at all the various barbarian invasions. So the Ostrogoths mm. and the Lombards and and the uh, Magyars and, and so on and so forth. So Anyway, Mike, that is fantastic. Thank you very much. You've painted a great picture and hopefully everybody will be thinking, great, this is going to be brilliant, not just fighty. Exactly, exactly. But there is a whole lot of fight. I mean, you could look at the 14th century 14th century Italy, there will be some kind of fight going on somewhere every day of of every week of every month of that century. Okay, well, that's fantastic. And I hope you'll help me on the way through with pronunciation. Absolutely, it'd be a pleasure. Well, that's very kind of you indeed. And you already have anyway, because this is very helpful and this is fantastic. So thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to your listeners for putting up with me. Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.